This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The United Kingdom's Prime Minister, David Cameron, plans to create a National Well-Being Index. French President Nicolas Sarkozy has formed a team that includes two Nobel Prize-winning economists to come up with a system for measuring the nation's well-being. In China, happiness indexes have become so popular that cities there compete for the title of China's happiest city. Many now argue that purely economic measures of a country's progress, such as gross national product, or GDP, fail to count many things that people value highly, such as personal and community relationships or a healthy environment. To learn more about measuring happiness, Knowledge at Wharton spoke with Nick Marks, author of the ebook The Happiness Manifesto, How Nations and People Can Nurture Well-Being. So you want to put the importance of GDP measurements as the sole measure of how well a country or its people are doing um, into perspective. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yes. Okay. So um, purely economic measures of how well a country is doing, typically GDP, um, in many important ways, don't measure how well an economy is, a, is performing for the people on the street. That's part of your basic premise, I think. So can you tell me what it is you think we should be measuring, and um, what is it in GDP that we measure that isn't such a good thing to be measuring? In other words, may may be something negative, but it gets counted as a positive, like I'm thinking of, uh, you know, energy waste, for example, will be a positive uh, as far as GDP is concerned, and yet obviously it's contributing to greenhouse gases and and other negative things, uh, health issues and so forth. So. Broadly speaking, maybe you could talk about um, uh, how, how you view GDP measures and what's wrong with them. Yeah, so starting with GDP and what's wrong with it, I mean, there's a long list of things probably, but the first one will be is that it makes no differentiation between whether expenditure is for a good thing or for a bad thing. And uh, we call these technically um, defensive expenditures when they're for bad things. They're things which are basically done to defend quality of life rather than uh, rather than to promote it. So, for example, you know, the big oil slick uh, down uh, on, off Florida would have cost an awful lot of money to clear up. And so that would be added as a positive to GDP, but obviously it's an extremely negative situation. So that's it. You know, we can speculate about whether, um, you know, the cost of cleaning up after the, you know, the earthquake in Japan will have huge economic, uh, will go through the GDP accounts as all positives. Yeah, obviously, it was a hugely destructive event and the loss of life and the issues involved with it are not accounted for in GDP. So really, there's that issue that a lot of GDP expenditures to defend quality of life rather than to promote it. Um, and then there are secondary issues that things GDP does not count. Uh, so one, it counts some of the wrong things. And the other thing is it doesn't count something. So it doesn't count, for example, you know, the, the, the loss of natural capital, the loss even of the running down of uh, fossil fuel stocks, for example. So it treats the running down of a capital good like the stock of oil under Alaska. It would treat that as an income, as a flow instead of a stock issue. So GDP has this great problem that it doesn't know how to treat stocks of capital that you that you run down it does know how to do it with financial capital has ways of adjusting it but not with natural capital it just treats it as a free good altogether and there are also the fact that lots of things happen outside the economy which are of value so they're not valued so 
I mean, this is one of the things that Simon Kuznets, the original architect of GDP, was well aware of, that there's all sorts of things that are of value which are not in the economy, household labour, um, you know, parenting, uh, community work, volunteering, all these things are outside the economy. They're, they're, huge. they're the fabric, they're the core economy in many ways, and they're not valued. So GDP has many, many problems when we think about quality of life. And how does that get back to talking about a happiness manifesto? Because there you're, you're trying to identify, I think, the things that that um, are outside of GDP, that are important and that contribute to a sense of well-being or happiness. Yeah, I mean, basically the premise behind the happiness manifesto is that, is that people's quality of life is experienced. You experience your quality of life, I experience my quality of life. So um, we're going to have to get into the realm of actually asking people about their experience rather than just trying to measure it by how many things they have. And we now have um, statistical methodology survey techniques to do this. There's been great advances in, in, in psychological research around this. Uh, they have metrics around this and we should be applying these for our public policy. You know, how do public policies affect people's life? So that's really the plea of the Happiness Manifesto. And of course it changes policy massively because if you're going for one target, you know, policymakers become efficient, effective at how do they improve that target. But if you give them another target, which is actually about people's experience of life, they probably would have very different policies. You know, a classic example of this is, do you try and reduce levels of crime or do you try and reduce fear of crime? They would have very different policies around them. And yet it's fear of crime that drives people's behaviour. It's fear of crime that stops the old lady going outside at night. It's not the crime levels. The crime levels might affect her fear of crime. But of course, obviously, the media, the way they report that, uh, how people talk about things, those also affect fear of crime. So those are sort of ways that subjective, we call subjective indicators when you're asking people about their experience or their perception, and objective indicators uh, uh, interplay, and they're both important. So you're a statistician, mm. so you know how to measure these things, or that's what you're studying, how best to measure these things. So what are the chief variables of happiness, and how would you measure them? Can they be measured? Well, I think we always have to remember with measurement, particularly when you start to get in something so uh, precious as our happiness, our well-being, that your measures are always approximations. I mean, I sometimes say that there's this Chinese phrase, which is that the finger that points to the moon is not the moon. And our statistics, our indicators are the fingers, they're not the moon. So we can indicate about levels of happiness just the same way that uh, health care professionals indicate uh, mental ill health, uh, mental, mental illness. They ask people questions around it. So we ask people questions about, yes, how happy they felt yesterday, but we also would ask them questions about how well they're functioning, whether they feel they're in control of their life, whether they feel they doing things that they enjoy, how are their relationships, your relationships are the most important thing for your well-being, how are they going? So you'd ask an array of questions around that and you build up a picture of people's well-being and uh, that, that's how you would do it, you surveys. Now these things have bubbled up now beyond the think tank stage. You have right here in Britain your Prime Minister, David Cameron, talking about a happiness index, I think it's called a happiness index, and he's interested in having measures around uh, you know, what the people in the UK are, are feeling about their quality of life. Some people have a cynical attitude about that. They're saying, well, you know, he's about to slash the budget, and um, you know, he, he sort of wants to divert attention away from that. But um, there's also, in France, an effort by the president of France, Sarkozy, to measure um, these same kinds of things. As a matter of fact, he hired a Nobel laureate uh, Joseph Stiglitz, I believe, to come up with a system, and they have produced a system, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Can you talk about 
what's happening at the government level and mm -hmm. the fact that there are actually now some systems to try to track this, mm. uh, and particularly what's happening, say, in France and the UK. Yeah. So uh, Cameron really talks about an, an indicator of national well-being. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, then the media turn it into happiness, and I talk about happiness as well because happiness is sort of a more attractive word than well-being. Well-being sounds a bit functional, but we're all talking about the same thing, just using slightly different language. And, um, of course, as you say, David Cameron's uh, ideas that don't come in a bubble, they're not totally isolated. There's a lot of work going on in this area. So, for example, the OECD have got a whole group on how do they measure progress. Uh, and uh, President Sarkozy famously uh, made a special economic commission to look into this, which was headed by Joseph Stiglitz, also had a Marta Sen on the committee and a, and a French economist called Jean-Paul Fatoussi. And um, basically the Stiglitz Commission was looking at What's the problems with GDP? So the whole first section is on problems of GDP. The next one is the next section is on sustainability. How should we account for sustainability? And the third is on quality of life now. And really, what they're highlighting is attention is that is that uh, um, quality of life now is really important, and sustainability is about quality of life in the future. And there's a tension between good lives now and good lives in the future, according to the Stiglitz Commission. And that's something we totally agree with. That's actually why it's such a political issue, because we often we're trading off the future for the for the now with some of us, uh, some of our decisions about our consumption patterns and how which how much CO two we're pumping in the atmosphere and things like that. So that's a really really important issue. Um, Cameron is going much more for looking at how do you measure quality of life now. They they haven't explicitly put it in a sustainability context. I think they will do. He has charged the chief statistician in the UK, the Office of National Statistics, uh, she's called Jewel Madison, which is an independent body in the UK, to create an ind index of national well-being. And that's the process they're going through at the moment. Uh, and, um, you know, as I said, there's a lot going on. There's quite a zeitgeist around this. I actually believe Cameron is very genuine about this. Uh, I don't think it's about a distraction. I think actually... He, they're taking a risk because actually it's open to ridicule the idea uh, in the media. So I, I don't think it's about distracting from uh, from the from the budget cuts, which it, it, I think they I actually don't think the two heirs are talking at all. Um, and I think that if they were to do another big round of, of public spending thing, really, they they should be using the well-being information to start to think about how do these cuts impact people's well-being. That would be the idea of them. You know, if you've got a system where you know that if you cut this from this budget and add this to this one you're going to get extra well-being in the population where you think you're going to. So that's, that's actually the, you know, the, the, the vision of what um, the well-being index might be about. Now, there's um, correlations between well-being and happiness and, and certain things like, let's say, healthcare. Mm. If you have a good healthcare system, that contributes to the general happiness. Mm. There's a professor at Wharton, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Professor Wolfers, who's written a paper with Betsy Stevenson, mm -hmm. and, and maybe you're familiar with that, and he points out that, well, if you increase GDP in, in general, raise the, the level of income of a country, that usually allows you to provide some of the um, things that would increase the level of self-satisfaction or, or happiness. You can afford a better health care system, for example. So uh, as, um, as the United States became more affluent, between, say, 1960 and today, the, the level of infant mortality, even in a place like the United States, which was low to begin with, um, improved dramatically. So that, that's one argument. So, and I don't know that you mean to separate um, uh, a level of affluence from happiness, but can you just talk about that dynamic between uh, perhaps there's a minimum level of affluence that one needs to become 
satisfied, after which further affluence doesn't make you much happier? Yeah, I mean, definitely we, all the well-being research suggests that there is the, the classic uh, falling marginal utility of income, that basically $1,000 in the in the pocket of a rich person is worth much less than $1,000 in a poor person. And that's clear, the same with the country level, it's the same everywhere. Um, the issue, you know, becomes, so, okay, rising GDP, the, I mean, the idea of GDP growth is that, you know, a rising tide uh, lifts all boats and that, and that everyone gets better. Well, the problem is most GDP growth has been extremely unequal. Uh, and so it's actually, you know, tipping, tipping the boats in lots of ways. Um, and secondly, you know, the, the, the things which are really, really critical for well-being um, simply don't cost so much. I mean, yes, it is important to have good healthcare systems. But, you know, for example, the US spends twice as much on healthcare as, say, France, but has very worse health outcomes, um, you know, to do with the system. So it's not simply about having more GDP, it's about actually how do we do that. And I think lots of the gains um, in life expectancy and reductions in infant mortality, which are hugely to be welcomed, um, yes, they, you know, they have come uh, with nations whose GDP is, is growing, but there's absolutely no need that that is a causal link. You know, we could actually just decide to spend more of our money on that and not grow. I mean, there's all sorts of ways of doing that. And those are partly technological advances, you know. So it's, 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 it's not, it's, you know, I don't agree with the Woofers argument that you have to have rising GDP. And we can see nations, as I say, Costa Rica, you know, actually average life expectancy is longer than the USA or very, very similar. I mean, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's not. And, um, and they have a great healthcare system there and they are much happier than people in the USA. And they're yeah, a quarter of the GDP. Um, it's a good example. Didn't they come up number one in your happiness index? Yeah, they they actually come out as Costa Rica. The, yeah, they come out as the happiest nation on the planet, which is a surprise result. But actually, I've since been to Costa Rica, uh, beginning part of this year, and you can see it's very very relational. They feel quite free, and they also very strong family relationships, very much very strong community relationships. Mm-hmm. And they have their problems. They have unemployment. They have rising income inequality, and they have rising crime. So they're not without problems. But they, they, they are a very, very different society than, than, than several. And Latin American countries, they also, you know, are blessed with a sort of, you know, a life philosophy in Latin America, which is quite vibrant, which, of course, is good for health and well-being. So, so there are interesting things, I think, that we can learn from countries like that. What are some of the other things that contribute to happiness? Uh, you talked about community relations, family relations. Those are important measures, aren't they, in the way that you look at things? Yeah, yeah. every piece of well-being research will say that human relationships is the most important thing. And in fact, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, you, we have evolved in groups and our relationships are absolutely key to our survival. So we shouldn't be surprised that, you know, from a, from a biological perspective that our happiness is tied in with that. And, you know, we feel good around relationships. Just as we, we feel great about giving, you know, it's actually, you know, that's something totally outside of the economy. How does the economy deal with gifts, you know, and yet actually, you know, you know, we, we, we love giving. You can see the reward mechanisms in the brain under scans actually far up when we're being generous and compassionate. So, um, so there's lots of things outside of the economy that are really, really important. So at NEF, we talk about there being five things that really generate people's uh, happiness and well-being. And, and the first is connect which is, you know, your social relationships. The second is being active, which is physical activity is great for our well-being. You know, the fastest way out of a bad mood is to go outside, uh, go for a walk, run, whatever it is you like doing. Taking notice, which is about 
you know, allowing yourself to be moved by things around you, noticing them, noticing what's going on with other people, notice the changing seasons, beauty, aesthetics are very, very important for well-being. Also noticing what's coming up from within you, you know, listening to, to those sort of doubts or those um, suppressed joys in your life and actually starting to act them out. The fourth is about keep learning, which is about curiosity is great, uh, great for well-being, you know, understanding things. Less about knowledge sort of stuffing, more about, you know, an engagement with the world and actually wanting to learn new things. Uh, and right through the life course, older people that keep learning have much better health outcomes. And then finally, the last one is give, you know, and that, you know, um, you know being compassionate. You know, the Dalai Lama always says, always says, sometimes says, um, if you want other people to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. And I think giving is actually where there's actually, um, there's a huge hunger, I think, in the West to give again. I think actually it's what people feel have been suppressed in a way we become quite individualistic and selfish as a society. And I actually think there's, there's a huge potential there for unlocking that. I think there's an experiment you said where two groups were given, what was it, $100 uh, yeah. for each person in the group. One group was told, spend it on yourself. The other group was told, spend it on others. And there was a big difference in the outcomes. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so there's this sort of classic experiment, which was that you know, people are given money at the beginning of the day and one half told to go and spend it on themselves so that's sort of retail therapy and uh, the other half are going to spend it on someone else so that's sort of uh, volunteering gift therapy and at the end of the day their happiness and how they've enjoyed the day uh, it was measured and the ones who gave to other people were significantly happier than the ones who spent it on themselves and you know that's actually uh, one that's very very interesting from a volunteering and a, from a thing and actually probably one of the best ways to spend your money if you want to spend it for happiness, is to actually think about giving away a proportion of it. And the second thing is the challenge to, you know, our, our materialistic consumptive lifestyles. You know, people talk about, oh, I'm going to go shopping, you know, as a sort of, well, you know, maybe you should, you know, go and look at some charities if you want to be happier, really, rather than going to buy a new dress, shoes, iPod, whatever it is. So you have some prescriptions about what countries should do to make their folks happier also. Could you talk about those? And also... How do you how do you make the connection? How do you link, you know, these ideas to actual public policies? So maybe you could talk about what policies would be positive first. Yeah, all of our work at New Economics Foundation really is, uh, you know, is about how do we? You know, well, our original question was, you know, what would policy look like if well-being was its aim? So we are a policy think tank, and um, and the issue really is is that it's not about being prescriptive. It's about opening up space allowing us to think in a different way. Uh, that's what well-being does. You know, many of the things that governments do will be in the same realm. They just do them very differently. And at a very broad level, government intervenes with us at three levels. One is it, it, it intervenes in the, in the economic realm, sets the parameters for the economy. One is it delivers public services to us. And the other is it creates local spaces for us, uh, spatial, spatial sort of policies. There obviously are other things they do, but broadly speaking, there's three things. And so in the Happiness Manifesto, I just tentatively put forward two ideas in each of those spaces. So uh, in, the, in the economic realm is that we know, for example, that unemployment is very, very bad for well-being, much worse for well-being than just loss of income. So GDP is never going to pick up the whole effects of it. It's actually a scarring effect. If you've ever been made unemployed, that stays with you for a long period of time. So we should move the economy 
more towards dealing with unemployment than, say, inflation, the classic trade-off between unemployment and inflation. Inflation is not a scarring thing. It's an annoyance. Let's not say we want inflation. But if we're going to actually be balancing policies around inflation and unemployment, we should, we should, uh, should prioritise unemployment much more over inflation. So it's about creating good work, really, for people, because it's not only about creating work, but it's about creating the relationships, the meaning, the things around work. So, you know, we shouldn't really be, you know, looking to create... Um, you know, rubbishy jobs for people just because they're creating jobs. We're trying to create good ones, and also need to be a redistribution of time in the economy. Lots of people are unemployed, underemployed, and yet we have some people overemployed, working very long hours. And there's a redistribution effect somewhere there. A lot of those people working over hours. I mean, some of it is that they love their job. That is for minority great. There's no real problem from that world being perspective. But many of them are working very long hours to pay off debt. To for things that they don't really need. So somewhere along the line, there's an equation to be done there about how do we redistribute those hours of working in the economy. And that's a difficult problem, but it's a political problem again, and that needs to be talked about. So creating good work is the first one. The second one is that we really need to reform the banking system. You know, we've seen these huge crashes, we've seen these huge problems of, we've seen lots of innovation in the banking uh, banking sector, which has driven up GDP, and yet it has systematically wiped out you know uh, uh, communities people we've now got huge public deficits in in most countries and it is a banking crisis that we've had and that's because they have they have ignored people in the system and they've really just put profit first the banking sector is like no other industry it's it's not a production or service-based thing it's a pinch point between creditors and debtors and it needs to be governed and governments have to do that. We cannot allow the private sector to do it by themselves, and they have to have ways that they put people before profit, and that needs to happen, um, and it's not happening in any Western government. So that's the second thing they need to do. Then we go into public sector. Well, we need to think about how do we, and we talked about healthcare, but actually how do we promote health and well-being? Most of our healthcare systems globally are actually sickness services. They're dealing with illness and sickness and how do we treat it. Very few of them are doing with promotion of health and how do we, some get into preventing health but actually how do we promote health and I think that's what we really need to move our, we need to create national well-being systems. We have a national health service which is national illness service really we need to create a well-being system. So are, are some of these things problems of affluent societies? In other words, you know, a, a less affluent economy or country may not have the luxury to think about these things. They're really driven by sort of day-to-day survival issues more. Um, some of them are problems of that, but I think that, um, uh, you know, obviously you're going to have to have a, a service in Africa and Asia that, you know, deals with, um, you know, malaria, uh, uh, cholera, HIV, AIDS. You know, these are important things to do. No one's saying you shouldn't be treating Uh, treatable illnesses that are killing people but in western countries uh, you know we actually have lifestyles which are creating uh, ill health so we need to deal with those so yes some of them are affluent country problems okay go back to your list so the fourth one is about flourishing education which Mm. is you know actually you know we have an education model which is about knowledge stuffing it's about exam factories about kids are, are examined very very regularly and the pressure on them is to perform to compete Actually, businesses want people that can cooperate, that can work together, that can innovate, be creative. And our education system is miles from that. It's also miles from, you know, why, why shouldn't the education system be about creating people fit to live great lives? 
rather than just fit for the economy. Basically, it becomes a factory to produce workers for certain sectors. So we're basically making people, kids, servants to the economy when they're at school. It's crazy. They should be just, you know, about how to how do they create good lives. You know, in Britain, we certainly try and teach them their ABCs too quickly. Uh, you know, we actually should have much more play at, at early ages because it's relational rather than knowledge. So there's lots and lots of things there that need to be sorted out in, in education. In local spaces, it's about how do governments much more engage with with communities and with people. You know, they've been quite standoff. Mm-hmm. New technologies are going to allow us to do that in different ways. But how do how do governments sort of not set themselves apart mm-hmm. but become closer to people and engaging with citizens? You know, you know, really running, um, you know, um, participation uh, engagement projects as participation projects. And, and actually risking mm-hmm. allowing people to make more decisions locally. Are these the kind of things that, that Cameron and Sarkozy are looking at, do you think? Well, Cameron is certainly experimenting this with his big society idea, which mm-hmm. is a very poorly communicated idea at the moment. But, you know, the idea that, that, that people should uh, take more control of their local lives is mm-hmm. something that he is playing with. Mm-hmm. Sarkozy Commission was very technical uh, about measurement issues really mm-hmm. so Cameron is experimenting in this space mm-hmm. but of course it looks like you know you can cynically look at his stuff and say he's cutting public services and we've got to fill the gap yeah, yeah. and particularly when linked with the second one about bankers mm-hmm. getting richer you know the rich are still getting richer and the poor are just left to fend for themselves so there's there's a, there's a they need to do better on their narratives around this well I want to get back to the list because I think there's one or two more there's two more but before we get there the, linking these ideas that uh, you know you this is a great outcome. Yeah. These are interesting outcomes that you're suggesting. But um, and then looking at what's being done in France and here is—is is there some link to connect, you know, this measurement with the outcomes, um, and, or is it just look, look? Here's where here's where we stand. Here's a photograph of happiness in the country at the moment. And then someone else is talking about here are some ideals we may or may not agree on. But then how do you get from from A to B? You know, are the are those links out there, or is, it, or is this sort of a you know a public awareness campaign to say we need to do this and to try to move people along? But what what is that link? How does it? How, what actually comes out of it other than you know we should be doing this, but you know, yeah. may, maybe maybe nothing happens. There's um, if I just finish the sixth one. Sixth one is build sure. good foundations, mm-hmm. which is that the way we do public planning spaces mm-hmm. can be designed for well being, and. That word design starts to answer your other question. Is uh, uh, the seventh one in in the Happiness Manifesto is measure what matters, which we talked about quite a lot. Mm-hmm. How do we link design and measurement? Most measurement is what we call statistically post hoc. Happens after an event. We can judge how it went. Design is about designing into it. So policy design is around how do we design things so that well-being will emerge from it. Happiness will emerge from it. And happiness, well-being is definitely, in my opinion, anyway an emergent property. You create system conditions and things happen in the system and people lead better lives or or not. Uh, And we have so many unintended consequences of policy. One policy does something, something else in the system changes unexpectedly often for it. And that's that's an emergent, that's a complex system, sometimes called wicked problems in that they're interconnected. Uh, Causality is very difficult to know. And causality with happiness and well-being always runs both ways. It's like, Yes, households with higher income do show themselves to be slightly less happy, slightly more happy. Happy people earn more because they create opportunities for themselves. Mm-hmm. So you've got the causality running both ways, round and round and round mm-hmm. in this loop. So it, it seems to me that we have to design policies, we have to design our lives, we have to make choices 
which is the best ones we can do that we think are going to things emerge out of it. We're never going to be able to say, oh, change this and this much happiness will come out. It's not going to be a cranking the handle linear thing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, from a statistical perspective, I call this creating heuristics rather than algorithms. Heuristics are next steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, at what can I do now? Algorithms are when you've got a very clear idea where you want to get to. How do you plot an efficient route to it? I think with well-being, we're in the realm of heuristics. How does it, we do it and how do things emerge? So two more things if we have time. One is um, the idea that um, if you create people that have more satisfaction, that are happier, that that then allows them to become more creative and better problem solvers and that there's this sort of you know virtuous circle yeah. that gets created. And you're also a psychologist, so yeah. it would be interesting to get your take on how that process works or could work or does work in some cases. Yeah, there's definitely a virtual, virtual circus around uh, happiness and well-being. I mean, our emotions, our whole emotional realm, is really a feedback loop in the organism. Uh, the, the evolution, really, at the heart of it, doesn't care about our happiness. It's a, it's a signal. I mean, we care about our happiness, but evolution doesn't. Evolution cares about our survival so, uh, and the survival of our genes. So basically, happiness is a feedback loop in the organism. And what it does is it's about opportunities instead of threats. Negative emotions like fear and anger uh, are bound to threats. Uh, sadness, depression is around loss of support, fear around uh, danger, uh, anger around violations. Um, and they're threats in the environment. Well, well, happiness and well-being is about opportunities. It's about things going well. And, and a person who's, who's, who's happy in a good mood can look out and see the environment much more, spot opportunities. And that then gets them to function better. They learn new things. You know, the child that plays learns new things, not only motor skills, but they learn social skills, emotional skills. And so it's, it's a, it is a virtuous circle from a psychological perspective. And so from a business perspective, you know, if you've got employees that are, you know, broadly engaged and happy at work, they're going to be more creative, more innovative for you. There's all these win-win situations in it. And in my firm belief is, is, is that if we're going to you know, create the technology and the innovations in our lifestyles that we're going to have to deal with climate change and other things, is we're going to need people to be positive about the future rather than negative. You know? That was actually my next question, <laughs> which is you, you made a point in your, in your book that using fear... Uh, I'm, I guess it's fear, but if but by constantly pointing out the dangers, uh, let's say, of climate change, that they could lead to certain very negative conclusions that um, that actually causes people to run away from the problem. Like that's the human psychological yeah. response versus yeah. sort of positive find a solution response yeah. I think you were just talking about. Yeah. Can you explain that whole idea? Because it seems like you have to build that up. To me, it seems as though you've got to build the awareness of the problem in order for... You do have to, to build the awareness of the problem. You have mm-hmm. to get people engaged with the problem. And, mm-hmm. and the environmental movement's already achieved that in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in Europe. And But what we've got in Europe is is uh, is uh, awareness of environmental issue, but rising scepticism about the science of it. Mm-hmm. At the same time that the science is becoming more and more solid, it's getting more and more peer-reviewed, and you know, basically the issues are better understood, the public is getting more and more sceptical about it. Why? Because it's scary. And it's because of the way I think partly the environmental campaigners have, have, have campaigned with it. So we need to get people aware. So obviously there needs to be a bit of grit in the system and a bit of fear and a bit of awareness. I mean, you know, fear has, uh, has also evolved to help us survive. You know? so, uh, and we have threats about the future. The problem is they're quite distant. You know, the, the, the science of climate change, you know, the, the, the costs of climate change are of years forward happening to other people. 
it's very hard to get people to stop smoking and that's their own body that they're damaging in 20 years time let alone the fact climate change is asking you to go future and other people so it's quite hard to get people to pay attention so we do still need to have the attention but we need to have that framed very much in a solutions based answer mm-hmm. and, a, and a way to do that and to engage people that basically your quality of life doesn't have to be threatened by this because actually your quality of life is much more about your relationships and non-material things and I think that's the big thing that we have to really get out there as an idea For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.